Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Graham, and welcome to SkewCast, the podcast that explores the who, what, why, and how of the promotional products industry. SkewCast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SkewCast is the official podcast of Common Skew. If you like what you hear, make sure to keep in touch by subscribing to the show on iTunes or at our blog, community.commonskew.com. And with that, let's get to it. Our guests today are Jay and Katie Lee, the creative powerhouse behind Rumi. For those of you who haven't heard of Rumi or seen their towering trade show booth at the various shows, they stormed onto the promotional product scene in 2013 with a range of high-quality and fashion-forward bags. Since then, Jay and Katie have carved out an exciting niche within the bag category, and they are on a growth tear. We're going to spend our time today digging into the roomy story, the problem they set out to solve with their bags, and what it takes to juggle a marriage and a business partnership. We will be joined initially by Jay, as Katie was just called into a photo shoot for a product they are launching on The View next week. She might join us between takes. How cool is that? Welcome to SkewCast, Jay. It's awesome to have you here. Great. Thank you very much, Mark. So, so Jay, why don't we start off at the beginning? Can you fill me in on the Rumi story? How did you get your start? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I was working at a family business, uh, which was sourcing and mainly import-export, um, and my wife, um, well, Katie, was a um, in advertising and an, as a designer by trade, and she was working uh, at Omnicom um, at an agency here in Denver. We had got married in Chicago, moved to Denver in late 07, um, and we were out to dinner with a friend of ours who had an online business, and she was talking about the growth of a lot of uh, reusable products and remember in 08 in Denver at the time, that's where they held the, the DNC, and there was this really greed movement to make the DNC the biggest green um, political um, convention of all time. Right. And so there was a lot of uh, interest in that category, and she was talking about dinner, how uh, reusable products, she can keep them on the shelves, uh, bottles and bags. Bottles are pretty good, uh, well-made, but bags, I mean, if we could build a better bag, she can sell a lot more of them. Um, I felt that uh, I can, like Katie can design them, I can get them manufactured, and we had a first um, uh, client at the table. And the more we drank that night, the more it made sense, um, and that's really the initial thought of Rumi was born, um, and that was uh, early 08 um, at the time. And then um, we were still working um, in our respective careers, but was kind of starting Rumi on the side, um, and then we really went full bore into it and, uh, and incorporated, uh, started uh, going to the, all the trade shows, et cetera, on the retail side in uh, 2010. Right. And and had you, I'm interested to take me back to 20, or sorry, 2008, were you chafing in your corporate jobs? I mean, I know that Katie was working for a big corporation and you were working more for family business, but did you always have that entrepreneurial desire? Um, yeah, I think so, um, especially uh, given the fact that my parents had started their own business. I was born in Korea. Uh, we immigrated um, when I was quite young, and uh, they started a business. So I think, you know, uh, being a business owner was always in my blood. Um, and in the family, in the family business, sourcing and import export, you're just basically a broker. And one of the things that the family business wanted to do, and me in particular, was start building a brand, something that we could own and grow, and something that I'll always be a part of. And I think that was really the allure of Rumi was uh, to build something that could potentially be bigger than just you know a family business. Right, and 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 bigger than the product as well. 
Exactly. Yeah. So when did you discover the promotional products market, given that you got your start in retail initially in around 2008? Um, I mean, we, when we started receiving calls from various uh, distributors, when we went to like the New York trade show and the Atlanta gift show, um, we started getting approached by some of the promo distributors that would be walking the show, um, or we got you know, calls from event planners, and um, they were asking if we name-dropped, and at the time, we had no idea what that meant, um, right. and you know that concept of co-branding. Um, and so we were really kind of pulled into the market, and we really had no idea how large it was and the ins and outs of it. Um, so it was kind of something that we dabbled in, um, but we didn't really understand uh, for how large the market is, it's not one of those um, markets that kind of uh, you go out seeking. It's one of the things that sometimes I think um, from the distributors that we spoke to, something that you kind of stumble into, and you're like, wow, this is a great industry. And that, that's kind of what happened to us. And uh, we had a product um, that was kind of at the high end of, of a mass category, yeah. but I think that's what helped us kind of differentiate ourselves as well. Yeah, well, I was going to say two things. So what's funny about you you mentioning how you bumped into the industry and it kind of just snuck up on you, um, the same story is often shared by distributor salespeople when asked how they got into the business because most of them will say, well, it's not like I went to college or university to learn how to be a promotional product salesperson or, or an owner. Um, I usually got pulled into it somehow. And so it's really interesting to hear you say that on the supplier side as to how you were also pulled into this monstrous business that, uh, that really just snuck up on you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that having a retail presence, um, that we weren't just, uh, a branded product lines have been, I think, something that's been in demand. And I think that helped us as well. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is that there's a whole host of retailers that have dipped their big toe into the promotional products market and have left because they can't wrap their heads around the uh, um, the lead times and the customer service requirements and the fact that uh, distributors require inventory as opposed to booking six months out, which is a retail phenomenon. So it's it, it, kudos to you for, for sticking with it because despite how big the industry is, it can be very challenging for a lot of retail-oriented uh, suppliers to really wrap their heads around it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we almost made that same mistake of like, you know, trying to serve two different masters, one being retail and the independent retailers and the mass retailers and then the promotional products industry. Yeah. And, um, you know, you really have to design your business for both of them. You can't try to make both categories fit into your business model. Right. So that's when right. we decided to say, okay, we're going to have this sort of you know working capital for uh, retail, and this is the working capital structure that we're going to have for promotional products. Right. And I think right. that's when we you know reengage in the marketplace, and uh, things started really taking off. Yeah, no, it's super smart. If, I think if you're not invested in both and treat them almost like separate businesses, then you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's certainly what we're right. with other other successful suppliers. Um, so. Jay, I want to jump in a little bit deeper into the fact that the bag category is one of the largest and most competitive segments in the promo industry. And I'm curious as to how you differentiate yourself. You mentioned a little bit about how you're at the higher end of the spectrum, but could you dig further into this in terms of how it is that you saw that your small bag line could come into this monstrous category that is largely very, very price sensitive and commoditized? And uh, uh, where you saw yourself fitting into that uh, into that spectrum? Yeah, I think when we first started in the category, um, 
you know, it was during the Great Recession or you know, the I guess the aftermath of the uh, right. Great Recession. Yeah. And it's always no, it's not why it's ever started a business. Sometimes I guess during those times. Um, but we, I, I think, you know, I, I tell this to our board and uh, other perspective, um, you know, people that are getting into the industry is that I think there was a fundamental shift in the attitude of the corporate marketer. Yeah. Um, in the past, it was just all about math. You know, we're going to go to every single trade show, we're going to hand out every single, you know. Uh, widget, and we're just going to get our name out there. And as market, corporate marketing budgets started getting slashed, they're being more selective in the product that they're looking for. And you know, one corporate marketer told me that if we're if if a prospective client can afford to go to a trade show, they're just going to be a better lead. And yep. so, am I going to give the better lead a 99 cent bag, or are they going to get something branded that they can remember before? So, I think that's really kind of helped. You know, a market uh, a downturn overall really benefited Rumi because we were able to offer, I think, exceptional value. So uh, we always had that retail price point, and especially our website as well, that we could tag things to. Right. So if we're going to deliver a product at you know three fifty to a distributor that they're going to resell for five dollars, they can tell that and corporate marketer, hey, if you go to myroomy.com, they sell the same bag for ten. Right. People are when they're people are buying this bag each and every day right. uh, for ten dollars. So right. that it's that exceptional value that I think corporate marketers were looking for, and they were looking for quality. Um, and something that could differentiate ourselves. And when we came into the marketplace, and I still think today we are the only one with true square sides and bottoms. We're the only patented reusable bag in the category. Right. Um, and these little functional innovations that we brought on were clear category differentiators. Um, and I, I think that the fact that they last. And so right. sometimes we've, you know, given a product to a corporate marketer and six months later we get an order because they use it each and every day to bring their stuff to work or yeah. get to the pool, et cetera. And they're like, man, this thing lasts. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we've been able to get that repeat purchase rate. And that's what we like about the, the corporate, um, the promotional product space is that, you know, we're a reusable product. But in the promotional product space, it's almost like a consumable because, you know, they keep using it for events. Yep. So as a retailer, you only, might only get one to three sales per prospective client, where in the promotional product space, we can get six to 12 because they yep. keep using it for their events. Yeah. So um, I think that we have a clear differentiation. Um, and when you look at our bag, just visually our bag versus our competitors, it's, it looks night and day. And yeah. I think that's kind of the, the key points of quality and value. Yeah. Well, I think a comment to that is, so when I got my start in the promotional products industry, I started off as a distributor with, with right sleeve. And what I always understood as that business was growing and scaling is that the customers were not necessarily buying products from us, but they were buying this emotional connection that they could sell to their customers. And that, that was really the business right. that we were in. And that, and we just knew how exciting it was when we would deliver an order of promotional products that was branded with whatever the end client was and how excited they would be and how like the person who had ordered the promotional products was all of a sudden having to hide the merchandise because all of these marauding um, colleagues would come out of their cubicles and try to steal it for themselves. And like that's that kind of right. emotional connection that I, you don't really get if the product is some cheap, flimsy, bought it at the lowest possible price from the cheapest guy out there. I mean, I just think that that's a, just a very a different business. So I, I can very much identify with your story and what it is that you're trying to, you know, sell within this industry. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I want to take a half step back because I'm really mm -hmm. curious 
about you in, you know, you start this business in 2008, you start getting some phone calls from people that want to know whether you can put their corporate logos on it. That might have been around, you know, a couple of years later. Why did you decide to create the sales model that you did in the promotional products industry? So clearly you join PPAI, ASI, you sell through the promotional products industry, which is through distributors who then in turn sell to end users. But since you didn't even know about that model a couple of years ago, why did you decide to do that? over just setting up a website that said, hey, Fortune 500 marketers, buy here. Yeah, I mean, there's two points. Um, uh, we always say internally that uh, to use a roomie is to love a roomie. Yeah. And so when we can get out to a sales force, a distributor sales force of, you know, five, 15 people um, at a time and get a roomie bag in their hand, get them to use it, teach them about the, the selling points. And they're really clear differentiating selling points that um, little nuggets of uh, information that we can give about our product line, about our brand, uh, they then in turn go out and sell to their uh, corporate folks. So we get this multiplying effect that yeah. I think that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, and so um, to do this at the scale of online, you just need to, uh, you know, spend a lot of money to get eyeballs to your uh, to your website and then somehow try to convert. Right. Um, and we're really good at doing that on the online space, um, but it's a whole different animal when we're trying to do that to teach a corporate marketer to go there. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the thing is that, you know, our product do need a little point of differentiation because uh, if you just go on our website and say, oh, I'm going to pay $5 for this and then I can go and then there's something that's costing you know, uh, a fifth of that right next to it, you're, you might say, well, I'm just going to get the thing that costs a dollar. Yep. Um, so we do need evangelists in the marketplace. Yep. Um, and, you know, every uh, meeting that we go to, uh, out of 10 people, we're always going to get two to three people that just love the brand and yep. love what it stands for. And then they just go and tell their clients. Um, and then they convert uh, the other two to three in their office that kind of got it but maybe didn't. And then, you know, there's some that they say, I'm just going to sell the 99-cent bag, and that's fine um, yeah. because Rumi is not for everybody. It's not for every end user, and it's not for every distributor. Yeah. Um, but we chose to go this way because we needed people to understand what the product is about, right. the quality and the value, right. uh, the key points of differentiation. And, um, and the only way to – we love the distributor model because you get – uh, this great multiplying effect. There's no way that we can, you know, uh, personally, even with our sales team, as good as they are, go out and meet a thousand, you know, right. prospective end clients right. in a month. Yeah. Um, but we get that each and every month because uh, working through distributors. Right. And and I also think that you come by it honestly because when you first set up your retail business, uh, you, you partnered with the targets of the world, and Target gives you that multiplier effect and that scale. Um, that mm-hmm. an individual consumer just can't. So, um, right. so it, it's interesting as I just asked that question, it dawned on me that you working through distributors is really no different than you working through Target and, and other major retailers in terms of that distribution. Yeah, and we went that route first even, um, on our website as well with something that we didn't really promote. Now we promote more. Uh, but we chose to go through independent retailers first and then mass retailers. And I think that's how you cut your teeth and become uh, a, a good business because the demands not only from promotional distributors, but also right. from the targets of the world just make you a better company at the end of the right. day. Right. Jay, tell me about your ideal customer in the promotional products industry. I mean, we've got... Uh, at last count, or if, um, I think the estimate is something like 25,000 distributor companies in North America alone. 
Um, are there some that are more ideal than others in terms of your target? Oh, absolutely. I think that you know the uh, promotional distributors that have that want to get to under understand and know brands and know how to sell not just a product and, and on function, but on what the you know what the business stands for um, and what the product stands for. I think those are the ones that, um, and also uh, you know we can give them uh, a narrative and we can give them some pieces of information and we can give them product. But ultimately, it's these promotion distributors that can put that into their, you know, understand that and then put it to what the promotional distributor also stands for. And that's when we actually have the best cohesion in terms of, you know, because um, and that means they also have a client base that can afford a five dollar right. because some clients just can't afford that. And again, that's fine. Um, but it's to find the right distributor that can take you kind know, of what we stand for and what our products stand for and how uh, and the quality of our products and tell that story through the lens of what the promotional distributor also means in the marketplace as well. Right. Um, because you know, you know, the promotional distributor in, in itself, uh, their branded product line as well because they sell on service and quality and yep. the same metrics that we try to sell on. Yeah. Because if we sell on price we're just never going to win. Yeah, and I, I think it's so interesting. I mean, I think that what we're talking about right now is a bit of a microcosm for what's happening in this industry right now and in that the, the distributors that are the most successful today are generally the ones that are set up like agencies or they understand how to add value. They understand how to sell that bigger picture beyond just the product. And mm-hmm. there's a, a whole class of distributor um, that is struggling mightily these days that complains about matching prices on for imprint or is primarily a product seller and, and has built a decent business up until this point just selling products but is struggling in 2016 to really add value. And what I find exciting about what you just said is it's, it's, it's great to see that there are suppliers that are really educating those distributors to go and sell a great product to the end client as opposed to a supplier that is simply positions themselves as a warehouse with a lot of stock with um, uh, reliable lead times and good, good pricing. I mean, that's important, but I don't think that that's necessarily the kind of story that suppliers should be telling distributors these days if we're going to get to the next level of growth in this industry. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, if you're just, those are things that, with capital, you can build. I mean, you could always carry more inventory. You could always buy more machinery. Yeah. Um, but the the service and quality and the value that deliver in the marketplace, you can't build with money. And yep. that's something that's got to be at the, the core of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to switch gears um, for a second to talk a little bit about you and, and Katie and your, your marriage and how you make things work. So uh, my business partner, Catherine, is also my partner in life, and we own both Right Sleeve and Common Skew. And so I'm, I'm curious to ask you a couple of questions about how, how the two of you make it work, because I, I know my sure. own experience. But uh, how do you balance your marriage with a business partnership, Jay? How does that work? I think we, uh, at the core, um, we both really enjoy what we do, um, and we have a passion for the business, and we love being at work. Um, and as cheesy as it sounds, it's like if you love what you do, you never, it doesn't feel like work. And uh, although you know, most days are challenging, you have your ups and downs, I think, uh, and, uh, fundamentally, we really enjoy what we do. Um, so I think that helps us um, when we talk, because 
we probably talk about work more than um, most couples, um, yeah. even if they do work together. It just seems like there's no off button, but because we both are very passionate about it and love what we do, right. it just seems to be having you know a normal conversation. Right. Um, you know, we often joke of like, if we don't, if we didn't have Rumi, what would our marriage be like? And, you know, <laughs> yeah. it'd still be fun, and um, and we have a six-year-old daughter that probably knows more about inventory and uh, you know, uh, hiring and unfortunately firing sometimes um, than most probably twenty-year-olds do. Yeah. Um, because we talk about it so much. Um, yeah. But I think that's what really what helps us. Uh, in our marriage is that it doesn't feel like we're always talking about work. Um, and uh, we both really enjoy what we do. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's got to be the, the the basis of it all, right? I mean, I think that someone's, mm-hmm. you know, talked about this whole idea of a work, um, a work personal split or the divide between the two. And at least from my perspective, I, I don't think that there's such a thing uh, anymore. I mean, I think that it's really all about how you blend work and personal and how the two can complement one another. I completely identify with the, with the over the dinner table discussions about inventory or about, you know, uh, personnel opportunities or challenges or, you know, customers that, that you're excited about or maybe ones that you aren't so excited about. Um, we've got three young kids that are under the age of 12. And uh, likewise, I think that they probably know a lot about the business, maybe some that they're excited to know about and some that they're like, oh, gosh, stop talking about it. But it's uh, right. it's interesting to hear your story. But I know that I, I think another thing that makes it work for the two of you is that that Katie has got more of that creative background from the advertising world. And then you have got more of the import export sourcing business. How does that manifest itself at work um, in terms of how you interact with each other during the day. I mean, there are probably days where you know, when I get home, she'll ask, like, how was your day? And I'm right. like, well, you saw me, you know, you saw me at the office. She's like, yeah, but we didn't talk once. Yep. Um, so I, as the business has grown, I think it's actually made us uh, stronger uh, business leaders. Like she runs her department. She has people that reported to her, and she's really, the times where there might have been friction in our marriages when I try to design a pattern to and it never goes very well. So right. I've learned um, to stay away. Uh, I'll put my uh, creative inputs into actual product design, but when it actually comes to the look and feel and you know the color selection and how the customer is going to relate to the product, that is really what Katie uh, works uh, works with. Um, I think hiring somebody like Dan to come in and really be because um, uh, ultimately, uh, like you know, if you look at a building. If it's a, a tripod, is much more stable than just you know two legs. And then we hired a, a great uh, operations and CFO um, individual that's been here, so he's kind of like the fourth leg of the management team. Um, and I think that kind of helps us as well, kind of delineate roles and responsibilities. You know, Dan taking up uh, heading up sales. Uh, we have somebody on the finance and ops side, and then you know me just kind of uh, managing uh, and putting the strategy together course of the company. Um, so we're, we find our number, our strength in our numbers now and making sure that everybody is clear in what their roles and responsibilities are. Right, right. You know, it's funny as you say that. I know that the the biggest fights and challenges that I've had in in our business with, when it comes to Catherine is whenever I stupidly start stepping into her uh, into her sandbox <laughs> and start right, uh, exactly. You know, making unsolicited uh, opinions about what she's doing, whether it's successful or not successful, and that usually doesn't go super well. I mean, I'd also say the same is true in reverse, and uh, and 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 so I, I've 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 learned over the years that that's generally not a good way to do things, and I and I think that this also applies whether you're married to your partner or not. If it's if it's um, just a, um, a 
a business partner that you're not married to, I think that the same rules apply in terms of respecting one another's expertise, uh, respecting the boundaries, and then also just knowing when the two of you can come together and where one plus one equals three as opposed to one plus one equals two. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to move to, so we've been talking a lot about success and all the great things that you've been doing since 2008. I want you to tell me about Rumi's biggest failure or challenge to date and what you learned from the experience. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, it's actually a pretty big point in our company um, because uh, about three or four years ago in 2012, uh, that was kind of the height of like iPad had just come out and iPhones and those were going crazy. Um, And we came up with a really cool idea to have interchangeable and customizable iPhone and iPad that you can sell at retail. We, yep. uh, this was late 2012, so we pitched Target and they loved it. And so they wanted to do, um, put it at 1400 stores on NCAP. And, but we only had phones at the time, but they're like, you know, we would even do iPads, we could do iPod Touch and all this stuff. And so, um, I think that in the development process of a new product or even a new business unit or maybe even a new business in general, if there are a lot of struggles early on and those, those could be warning signs, you're kind of maybe going down the wrong hole. Uh, wrong path, um, and you know, basically we hit every single challenge in development of product. One, when iPhone 4 came out, I believe iPhone 4 or iPhone 5, I think it was right. iPhone 5. Yeah. Uh, it had a metal back. And that right. was the first one to have a metal back, and our plates were printed on metal, and so that was ruining the antenna. Um, reception was dying, um, and but we finally got it to market. And it failed miserably. It just bombed. Uh, that was, I think the biggest learning thing from that is, you know, number one, don't follow trends. And number two, if it's out of your wheelhouse and you can't scale and compete with the Otterboxes or the specs or those of the world, um, it's going to be a difficult challenge. And if it's not a part, core part of your business, I mean, we're good at making bags and we're like, well, you know, cases are like bags. And so we kind of uh, almost convinced ourselves that this was going to be a good part of our, our business. And um, I think that epic failure taught us that uh, you've you got to be able to explain what it is really easily, succinctly, because at just at uh, PPI or at retail, you really only have seven to ten seconds to convince a customer that this is a product that they were interested in, and then you got to do the sell. Right. Um, so from that, I think, epic failure, we were able to really reorganize the company. Um, we felt like, okay, we're too diverse in our channel, so we decided to just be online mass retail and corporate uh, or promotional um, channels and um, really started focusing on our product line and on bags. Right. And I think that's kind of been, you know, we've been growing at triple digit rates since that failure. Right. Um, so I think that's been, it's one of those things as my mom said, a bad thing that turns into a good thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, although painful as it was and, you know, a huge, um, you know, we thought this was going to take us to the promised land. Um, I think that, you know, the promised land is something that you have to work for each and every day. Right, right, right. Well, it's in the key word and what you just uh, said is, is focus. And I think that any business that tries to uh, expand beyond their area of expertise or gets distracted um, and isn't able to focus either their product development efforts or their story or their customer base um, is one that ultimately suffers. So it's great to, it's great right. to, hear the, the failure because that's always, uh, you know, that drama is always really interesting, but it's good to know that you learn from it. Um, just to, just, just uh, maybe two or three more questions here, Jay. I've been having a lot of fun with this, so thanks so much for your time so far. Um, You're very welcome. What, 
what part of the Rumi story are you the most proud of? Or maybe maybe I'll ask you another way. When when you talk about Rumi to your six-year-old daughter, what's the story that you want her to remember the most about the company that you and Katie are building? I think it'd be uh, perseverance and the ability to adapt and learn quickly yeah. um, because there's no manual for this. Um, and the fact that we're able to learn and adapt quickly and make decisions quickly, I think that's kind of where probably the you know two most important things um, that I'm most proud of that you know we've overcome some substantial challenges and persevered and that we'll make decisions and yeah. for right or for wrong. You know, I think you have to make decisions, um, and I think that's kind of the most proud of from a real like a top level sense. But I think. You know, the third thing would be the fact that we've been able to get some really great people to join the company and that share in the Rumi vision and the Rumi story that yeah. will say, yeah, I want to be a part of this and I want to work here. And we've uh, talented, uh, some of the great management team, um, but also uh, a great team of salespeople, people that support um, on the, the pro- project manager side, people in creative. Um, so it's really fun to see that it's not just, you know, because uh, most likely, most of them, they probably get paid better at other places. Right. The fact that um, they're, you know, they want to be somewhere that's fun, and I think yep. that's probably the third thing of, you know, people that want to be here. And I yep. think we've created a fun work environment. Yeah, no question. I mean, you you think about what attracts employees. There's no question that compensation's an important part of the equation, but um, meaning and a sense of belonging and. Um, uh, opportunities with career development are things that are often more important to a lot of people. And, you know, it's interesting. I just thought of this that, you know, it's maybe a little bit analogous to how we sell promotional products to an end client, right? Like we, we have this conversation about price and price is the thing that dominates the conversation in many, in, in many situations, but the most effective promotional products campaigns are not necessarily sold on price. They're sold on experience. They're sold on quality. They're sold on the emotional connection. They're so- sold on um, uh, the, the overall marketing value that this particular product delivers with price mm-hmm. being secondary. And there's, there's actually a lot of analogies between that and how it is that you attract employees, right? At the end of the day, right. do you want the employee who's going to only come because they've been offered the most amount of commission split or the highest salary? Well, and as I say, compensation is still very important, but I don't know where that's necessarily the most ideal employee. I think that it's going to be someone who is going to value everything that you're bringing to the table. So I like to draw that parallel. So it's a, good on you. for. No, that's a really good point. All right, I, I'm I'm a big reader, and I know there's a lot of people in the Commonskew community that uh, that, are, that are book nerds. Um, I'm curious, Jay, if you can tell me which book has had the most profound impact on you as an entrepreneur. Um, there was a book that uh, when I was in college, uh, my sister went to uh, University of Colorado Boulder, and there's a great little bookstore um, called Trident. Um, it's part of Trident Cafe, and I found this book called Lure the Tiger Out of the Mountain. The 36 Stratagems of Ancient China, um, okay. and uh, purchased that book. And uh, it's one of those books that I just, you know, will pick up and read a chapter. Um, and pretty much, you know, every year I'll read, I'll probably reread the whole thing. And it just gives you uh, quick little snippets of the overall strategies of uh, great uh, generals and leaders of ancient China. Um, and I would say that's probably my favorite book. Wow, that's great. I, you know, I've, I've not heard it uh, before, so I'll, I'll go take a look at that and get it, uh, get it at, uh, the library. Um, all right, last question for you, for you, Jay, an easy one. Where can people learn more about you and Katie and, and Rumi? Um, I'm probably on our YouTube channel as well as on our website. I think we posted a lot of our websites, um, 
on a lot of our videos on our website, um, and there's a good series that Katie put together uh, along with the creative team um, uh, about just the Rumi products and kind of how to sell them and the features and benefits. Um, so that's uh, we have some videos just about us and as well as the company and some of our products on our website. Yeah, well, I'll tell you that uh, in having seen a number of your videos, you do a fantastic job of really not only telling the the story behind Rumi, but also just some really great selling tools that you have for the specific products that you have and, you know, creates this, as I was saying, this emotional connection, the sort of smile factor, which which is great. And it's very, very hard to do. A lot of people can't pull that off in videos. So uh, you should be um, so that's certainly a shout out to you and also to people listening to this that you should check out the, uh, the YouTube channel for Rumi and, uh, and, and you'll learn something. So thanks so much, Jay. This has been so fun. Time always flies when we do these conversations and wish you the very best with this opportunity with the view. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. We're excited to launch a, a product. We can't announce what it is, but it's, uh, it's relevant to this time of season. That's all. Great. And, and it'll be available for the promotional products industry as well? It will. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have an email blast that goes out uh, probably next week on it as well. Awesome. Well, we'll maybe we have to schedule a follow-up uh, where, where Katie can join us and uh, tell us all about the photo shoot and the experience. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.